listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBTQ adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor, and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with James and talking about family finding as a single adopter. Hi, James, how are you? Hi, I'm good, thank you. Good, I'm glad. And so you're at a really interesting phase of the adoption process but I guess if we can sort of rewind a bit how did you decide that you wanted to adopt? Um, Yeah so I think I've always known I'd wanted to be a dad obviously when I pictured having a family I didn't envisage that being on my own but after a couple of failed relationships and having discussed adoption with both of those I kind of was in a stage in my life where I'd moved to Manchester to be closer to my friends and family and bought a house and I was in a position to offer a child a a stable and loving home. So I kind of thought, you know, now's now's as good a time as any. So, yeah, that's kind of when I made the decision really to, to go down the adoption route. And did you know of anyone else who'd done it as a single person? Um, No. So I actually hadn't come across any single people that had adopted I've there's I've got some links to people who adopted as as couples but no one on their own did you feel like you'd be welcome in the process or were you a bit worried that that was going to be a barrier or indeed being gay did you feel like either of those I guess would be a big barrier for you to be honest I think uh as a society, we're in a much better place in terms of where we are with adoption, in terms of um, being gay and, and even being single. I think there's probably less representation, and certainly what I found in the process, less representation of single gay people um, adopting. And I really struggled to find material uh, and stuff to read up on from single uh, adopters. Um, so that was one of the challenges I found. But in terms of worrying about being welcome, I, I didn't really have those concerns. I actually, um, and actually starting the process from start to finish, I think I've, yeah, been it's been really smooth, actually, and I've really enjoyed the process. I mean, it's really, really nice to hear that, and especially from a single carer, because I think going back not too many years, there would have been some fairly significant barriers as a single gay man going into the process. Do you feel like any part of that process was harder for you, either because you were male or because you were gay or because you were single? To be honest, I think the main challenge that I've found throughout the process is having that other person um, to talk through things after so, for example, when you do the the three-day course in stage one, you know, at the end of that, it's a really long day. Obviously, I did all of mine during COVID, so it was online. And at the end of the day, you it's nice to have someone to talk to who's been through that same thing with you so you can discuss it. So I did find that a challenge, not being able to talk through my day as such. But my social workers, I've had two social workers throughout the process, and they've both been great. I had one in stage one uh, and then a separate one in stage two. And they've been really great in terms of allowing me to talk through anything that I needed. And now I'm in the family finding stage. That is one of the challenges again, because as you start getting snippets of potential matches, um, it's really hard to kind of talk that through to yourself you almost want someone next to you to kind of talk it through with. 
I can understand that because um, one of my colleagues went through the process as a prospective single adopter. And they, one of their suggestions that they've made since to agencies is that they allow people who are doing it as a single person to bring a friend, for example, to that prep course. Because just to have that person to bounce off and to discuss things with afterwards might be a really good thing. And I mean, obviously, it would be a good friend who's willing to sit through all of that with you. But I think if agencies can start building that kind of flexibility about people's circumstance, it could perhaps avoid that situation where you kind of leave the course thinking, I wish I could dissect the detail of this with somebody. Yeah, and you know, more than likely that friend that you bring to the to the course with you is going to be a big part of that child's life anyway. So it's probably good that they are educated and, and know as much as, as they can before I go into the process as well. So yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. I, I guess the system as yet isn't entirely set up for that, but hopefully it will get more and more and more so. Yeah, I think it's obviously come on a long way in in terms of over the years. But yeah, I still think there's there's bits that can be improved for different circumstances like like myself, you know, being a single gay adopter. Yeah, absolutely. It does still sometimes feel there's a little bit of a template. And then, you know, they're able to flex more and more outside that. But occasionally it is still a little bit, you can be quite aware, can't you, that you're not fitting the exact mould, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think when I was doing the course, there was only two of us that were single adopters and, and the other one was um, a, a single female. But actually, I was I was pleasantly surprised that I wasn't the only one on the course out of 14 people. No, that, that must have been a massive relief, I can imagine. Um, so who is in your support network and how did you begin discussions with them about what you might be considering? Because I guess that the point of them being your support network is that in future you will require support from them. I just wonder how you did those conversations with those people and who they are. Yeah, so I am incredibly lucky and I I say this all the time. I have got one of the strongest networks, I think. And actually, as part of my um, profile and thing that the panel picked out was that my network is really strong and actually stronger than some some couples so I was really pleased to hear that when when I was told that at panel I think so I'm lucky that I live in close proximity to lots of different friends but more so my brother and uh, my sister-in-law who is also one of my oldest school friends as well uh, and their two children live in, in Manchester, and they'll be a huge part of my network going forward. Um, and you know, after the adoption leave is over, my sister-in-law will you know help with childcare and stuff like that. So I'm incredibly lucky to have all of that support. In terms of the conversations, it was pretty easy to be honest. You know, they they know that they've always known that I wanted to be a dad. Um, and when I you know started telling my friends and family. Everyone was really supportive. I didn't really get any negative comments or feedback. And, you know, everyone was like, yeah, this is, it's amazing what you're doing. And they'll be there to support me as much as, as much as I need. That's really, really lovely. Did you have to do a bit of education with people on what adoption is and a bit of removal of people's preconceptions about adoption? Again, I'm quite lucky in terms of um, a lot of my friends work in the public sector so their day jobs come across people that have been adopted for example along the way so they had an idea others that 
don't really know much about adoption have, have asked lots of questions. And I actually really like that people ask questions because it shows that they're interested and that they want to want to learn about it. So, yeah, that's actually been quite a, a, a positive thing is that actually everyone's wanted to know more about the process and, and kind of what supports there and stuff like that. So I think it's... Um, it's actually been really good to be able to answer people's questions and that they're so interested. That does sound ideal and ideal that people are actually asking as opposed to just assuming things. So, I mean, I guess that when we all approach something new, we've got both hopes about that, but also fears about that. What are your hopes and fears about how this is going to look? Oh, great question. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I think, so the hopes and, and how I envisage is that, so I was very lucky, I had a great um, upbringing and great family life. So, you know, the dream is to have a child that grows up with their cousins, so my niece and nephew who are, are two and six months now, um, and that we go on family holidays and that we, we grow up all together so I I grew up with a lot of my cousins and we went on lots of holidays so I'd love to replicate that for my child I know that that's the the ideal and there's going to be so many challenges along the way and you know I'm one of those people that reads into if I'm going to do something I'll do a lot of research so I've read lots of stuff um into adoption and listen to lots of podcasts and I follow lots of Instagram accounts and stuff like that just to educate myself and yeah I think the challenges are you know that people going through the adoption process know what the potential challenges will be um, and it won't always be as as picturesque as I as I made it sound but all I hope that the child is happy and I, I know that I can provide a secure and loving home and that they're going to grow up with lots of people around them that love them. And I think that's, I guess that's all we can hope for at the start, isn't it, is hope for those things. I guess it can be, I guess it's three in the morning, isn't it? So my dad calls it the hour of the wolf, you know, when you're kind of, when we were cave people and the wolf is stalking past at three in the morning and, you know, when you sort of lay awake and you're thinking, oh my God, what am I doing? Are you having any moments like that? Or was that just me? <laughs> no, so absolutely. So all throughout the process, um, you know, my social workers said to me before, like, you know, you just seem to take this really calmly in your stride. And that's the kind of person that I am anyway. I, I don't really reflect what's going on inside. <laughs> and I, I, I tend to internalise like everything that's that's um, playing on my mind. But yeah, absolutely. Like th- there are those 3am moments where I am going, okay, am I doing the right thing? Like, what am I doing? This is going to be a huge life change. Am I going to be able to be this great dad that I think I'm going to be? And, um, you know, what if the child becomes ill and then I'm ill and that we're both ill and, you know, stuff like, you know, the practical things. Who yeah. Who am I going to call on to help? And, you know, I've spoken about this to some of my friends and, you know, I'm lucky to live close by to a lot of people, as I said. And, you know, they'll, they've said, you know, if you need us, we'll be there. But then, I, you know, you question, are you really going to come around at 3am if I'm ill and the baby's <laughs> ill and stuff like that? But they've, they've been very reassuring that they will help. And I know that will be on the rare occasion. But, yeah, you do have those moments and you think, 
you know, it's particularly harder on your own because you haven't got that second person to rely on and you can stay in bed and they can go and look after the, the, the child. So, yeah, I do have those moments. But overall, the, the, over, the, the overall feeling is that I'm just excited and really can't wait to be a dad. So that kind of outweighs those, those fears. I think that sounds lovely. And actually, as you say, the support network that you're describing is one where the child can go round to your family's houses and you will get those breaks. I think sometimes for couples, you can end up both simultaneously doing a lot of the parenting and nobody's really getting a break or, you you know, you have the who's the most tired competition. And so I guess, you know, with that, you know, the saying it takes a village to raise a child and it sounds actually like your support network is like that already you know communal holidays communal events and so on yeah definitely and I think that's kind of really come through throughout my adoption process to to my social worker is that actually I am really lucky to have that and you know my sister-in-law will will help with the childcare once the adoption leave is over because sadly I will have to go to work because I'm the only one earning money Mm. um so yeah I just yeah that's one of the one of the things coming through this process and I feel very grateful for who I've got around me and I think that you know it's very rare that you sit back and reflect on who you are as a person and actually going through the the, the process you you kind of think oh god okay yeah no I am lucky to have this person this person can offer me this this person can offer me that and actually my referees so my references uh, my two friends and my brother and sister-in-law they also said the same they quite enjoyed doing the the references I, I think I think it sounds really lovely I mean it sounds as though you are as well set up as it's possible to be you know in advance yeah um I think so I mean there's only a certain amount of preparation you can do before yeah. obviously it happens and I know that it's probably everything that you think's you're going to do is probably going to go out the window and um, <laughs> completely change uh-huh. <laughs> yeah yeah oh look we bought this I've probably said this before on the podcast I can't remember but um we bought this cookbook and oh my god it's 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 the most wholesome just aspirational cookbook for what you might cook for your child and it's I mean it's not even just carrot sticks and stuff it's like special organic carrots carried from the farm by angels and deposited on your you know and it's all like that anyway we just once cooked these bloody fish fingers from scratch I don't know why there are fish fingers all over the supermarket (laughs) the special fish fingers from actual fish in actual breadcrumbs and we buggered about for ages and at the end we produced these fish fingers you know on a silver platter with a butler and all that you know that's what it felt like and of course of course my child refused to touch them screamed and cried and that was the end of the fish fingers sent from heaven above it was like right that's it captain birds are here we come after this because I'm, just, I'm not doing this anymore life's too short so yeah you know good luck if you if you're steaming a lot of stuff um yeah. so so tell me about your family finding process I guess do you know what sort of child you're looking for do you know what sort of age you're looking for yeah so um I was approved at panel a couple of months ago now so yeah we're in family finding stage I guess um for me because I am a single adopter and I will rely heavily on on my family and and friends I'm looking for a a child similar age to the, the children that 
they'll be around within my network. So we're looking for a child around around two or three, so similar age to my to my nephew, because the, the thought process is that they'll probably go to s- schools in similar areas, if not the same school, and will grow up together. So it's probably handy that they are similar age. In terms of ethnicity, like that, no preference or no gender preference either as well. So yeah, that's kind of what we're we're aiming for. That's quite nice. And um, yeah, I can see why matching ages would make things work within the, within the family. And I've heard other people say that as well, that they were looking for a child of similar ages to nieces and nephews. So I think that's that's really nice. So how's that going? Have you been looking at profiles? Have you been any further down that process as yet? Yeah, so I think, uh, so really early on, actually, after um, approval, I was shortlisted for a little boy. Uh, I was in the, the final two it sounds like a competition and I, I I wasn't successful but by that time I'd seen a brief profile with a with a picture and a, and a name and actually when I saw the picture I was like oh wow yeah you know he had similar eyes to me and his personality seemed to match my personality oh. as well so it really it really um hurt when <laughs> when I wasn't successful but yes. I allowed I allowed myself to kind of feel that pain because it was the first one so you know you get overexcited a little bit and I think that you know my social workers warned me that you know there is a lot of of cases like this where you know you're you're not successful but you might get so far and then not be successful so I that kind of was a little lesson and and now there's a couple of others where um I'm shortlisted for but I'm just finding a bit more about birth parents medical history etc so yeah it seems like within touching distance I think but and now that you're doing that again you know that you're potentially interested in some specific children again are you holding back a bit more this time emotionally or is it just hard to do that no I think I definitely am holding back emotionally I think the 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 first one that where I was shortlisted to the the final two I did I did allow myself to get excited, which I think is understandable in a normal human kind of emotion to feel. But yeah, I am kind of a bit more reserved now. And I, I don't think I'll believe that it's happening until, you know, it's all right. OK, we're now going to sit down with health professionals and social workers and discuss the match. So, yeah, I'll, um, I'll allow myself to be a bit more reserved this time. Yeah, it's so difficult, isn't it, that, you know, you have to engage to a point to to know whether it's the right thing but then if you engage too much and it goes wrong your heart does take a bit of a battering and you know if that happens repeatedly each time it's just it's just hard yeah no I agree and I you know I've spoken to friends and family about this and they've just said you know you need to take some time to do self-care and make sure that you're doing fun things as well because it is a lot to go through especially on your own you've got no one to really talk through these profiles of, of about because obviously it's the it's the child's story and a lot of it is confidential information so I do feel sometimes that I'm kind of you know having conversations with myself in in my head because although the social worker is there and and my social worker is great I think sometimes I wouldn't have the same conversation with them as I would if I was having it with with a close friend so I, I do find that tricky and yeah, that's probably one of the hardest parts, actually, in in this in this stage for me. Yeah, I can absolutely understand that. I have heard from people sometimes, though, that there is something really positive about 
adopting as a single person, which is that there is a simplicity to the number of relationships running. Because when you adopt your child, there will be one relationship running because it's between you and the child and, and, and just that one. Um, whereas, so in my household, we've got five people and, um, hold on, I'm adding it up in my head. <laughs> so there's 10 relationships running. If, if you join each person to each person on a diagram, there's 10 different relationships at play in, in this household. And so the scope for the complexity of that and managing so-and-so's relationship with Thingy and Thingy's fallen out with so-and-so and Thingy's feeling happy with them and Thingy's feeling resentful and they're feeling closer and It's really, really complex. And I've heard single adopters say that they really liked the fact that they could simply focus on that one relationship and the needs of that child in a way that really helped them bond as a benefit really to that, that you can't do. If you have a household of two adults and one child, there's still three relationships at play, you know, each adult with the child and the two adults between them. And again, it's this constant thing of multiple monitoring of different relationships. So I hope that for you, that's the thing that happens, that that ability to just focus on getting that one relationship very right. Yeah, and, and do you know what? I never actually thought about that properly. Obviously, I knew it would just be the two of us. But actually, when um, one of my first meetings with my social worker, and we were going through some example cases of, of children, and actually some of the children benefit more from having that one relationship. So actually, there are children out there where a single adopter is the best match for them. So, you know, I was like, I was really pleased with that because I thought I was nervous about going into this on my own anyway. But actually hearing that reassurance that it is beneficial for some children just to have that one strong bond really put me at ease, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the thing is that although a lot of us approach adoption being concerned that we aren't the heterosexual couple with the white picket fence and all of that, Actually, it is it is real and true that a diversity of adopters means that children get the best match for them. And you're absolutely right that for some children, that single focus for them is the absolute best thing that they could have. And that's a fantastic thing. And so it's really important, I guess, to have this really wide pool of people available in order that the child who needs that can get that. The child who needs a busier household can have a busier household and stuff. And hopefully children just get the match that they really need. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I agree. And I think that's reassuring. So for anyone, you know, thinking of going into adoption on their own, I hope that kind of reassures them that actually there is a child for any dynamic, really, within within an adopter. Yeah, I agree with that completely that, um, you know, if you're if you're broadly, you know, in a good place, able to prioritise a child, able to care for a child, then probably you've got something to bring. And it's always it's always sad when people say, oh, I don't think we'd be accepted or I don't think I would be because of X. And actually, there aren't that many X's that would make you unacceptable if you really want to do it. You know, there's one or two things, but a lot of stuff, if you're really committed to it, actually works out as a strength in the end, you know. Yeah, and I think that's that's another thing. In terms of doing this process, I've never once felt like I shouldn't be doing it. The agency that I use have been have been brilliant. As I said earlier, I've had two um social workers because the first social worker got a new role after stage one. And both social workers have just I I know this sounds strange, but I just felt like an uh, I know I am a normal person, but do you know what I mean? I felt like I, I belonged there and I should be doing it. There was no reason why I shouldn't be doing it. So I yeah, I was really 
really grateful for the agency that I used and how supportive they were as for me being a single adopter. Yeah, I think that's really good. I love that you opened that sentence with, I am a normal person. I do know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Starting sentences with, I am normal, definitely makes you sound completely normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I guess now you're just in that limbo period, aren't you, where you don't really know what your life's going to look like six weeks from now. It could be very different. And it might not be for a while. How are you coping with that uncertainty? Yeah, the uncertainty is a big one, actually, because it's it's hard to manage. And obviously, it's really difficult to manage at work. And work have been really supportive, actually. And, you know, I'm mainly working from, from home now since the pandemic, uh, which has allowed me to move up to Manchester because my office is in London. But they've been really great. And, you know, it's difficult for them because you know, they know that it could be six weeks before they're left with a vacancy and then have to backfill. So that's, that's hard for them. But yeah, no, it's, it's difficult. And obviously, you can't plan things. It's uh, really hard to do that. And one of the most painful questions that people do ask is, so, so when's it going to happen? And I'm like, well, I don't know if I, <laughs> if I knew that, <laughs> if I knew that I'd uh, be a lot more at ease. So yeah. It is. It's such a weird thing. And because I guess, you know, if you're having a baby the traditional route, then you do have a due date and you have, you know that you're going to get a newborn baby. So you can kind of picture what life might be like with a newborn baby. And there's an element of predictability about that. But then with adoption, you know, it it could be an 18 month old, it could be a two year old, it could be a three year old, say. Now, although they aren't far apart in age, really, in terms of development and what life looks like, they are completely different things. So it is that weird uncertainty of not really even being able to toy with it in your mind too much because you just don't know. Yeah, I know. And that's the, the age element is also another um, complexity to kind of think about because, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to take a, a year off. And then after that year, what does life look like? So depending on the age they might be you know going into uh, reception or they might have to go to nursery so it's about okay what does life look, look like after the adoption leave because I have to think about that because there's only me to think about it there's not another there's not a partner that can maybe stay off and, and look after them or or anything like that so there's lots of things going around in my head that I have to think about and um, yeah it, it can get overwhelming at times but I think you just have to kind of remember that your support network are there to support you and that you know there are people out there to to help you think things through and talk things through. I think that's really useful to be saying and so with that in mind if people are listening to this who are thinking about doing this process as a single prospective adopter have you got advice for them or words of wisdom? Words of wisdom so (laughs) I, (laughs) I think you know in your heart whether you are ready to I think you know whether you're ready to be a parent or not and I think that if you are thinking about doing this alone I think make sure that you have got that support network it's so important and make sure that you've got that one person or two people that you can go and speak to and and just unload everything that's going on in your head and what you can unload and just speak through with other people because it's it's really hard to carry all of that information inside your head Uh, and it is quite a lot to carry and a lot of this stuff that you go through you know it's 
it's quite deep to, to go into you know some of the the, the case studies that you go through etc when you're track when you're on your training course so just make sure you use those people around you to to talk things through that's really useful advice and really I wish you all the best will you come back and do another podcast once you've got your child and perhaps you've settled all in a little bit yeah I'd love to yeah <laughs> thank you so much I'd like to thank my guest today James if you enjoyed this podcast please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends follow us on twitter at lgbt adopt foster and on facebook search new family social all one word visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk adoption fostering and tea is produced by new family social the presenter was me tor doherty with music from matt doherty the producer was john jenkins we'll be back next time with more guests and more tea 